0: Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. In a few moments, Derek Scaly will be on the line from Berlin to tell us how Angela Merkel continues to outfox her opponents in the run-up to Germany's federal election in September. And I'll be talking to Clifford Coonan, our China correspondent, about the plans to mark the 20th anniversary of the handover of Hong Kong from British to Chinese rule. But first, to the United States. Where the Republican Party's efforts to dismantle Barack Obama's signature domestic achievement, the Affordable Care Act, and replace it with a new health care reform bill look to be in serious trouble. It's an
1: unbelievably complex
2: subject. Nobody knew that health care could be so complicated. And statute,
0: I'm joined by our foreign affairs specialist, Ruan McCormick. Ruhan We heard US President Donald Trump back in February saying nobody knew healthcare could be so complicated. I think what he really meant to say was that he didn't know it could be so complicated. This story is back in the news right now because the Republican Party is struggling to get its health care reform bill through the Senate. What are the latest developments?
2: Well, Chris, you'll remember that in March, the Republican Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, pulled his repeal bill at the last minute when it be- became clear that the Republicans didn't have enough uh, votes uh, to carry it. They were under pressure because they couldn't bring along both the moderates and the, the more um, conservative Freedom Caucus. They couldn't strike a middle ground that would bring both of those groups along with them. And so the bill was pulled... At in, at House level, <clears throat> excuse me. And at, at the time, it seemed as if this was one of the major early reversals of Donald Trump's presidency. However, six months—sorry, six weeks—later, um, they managed to um, find a compromise by tweaking the bill slightly, that brought both those moderates and the Freedom Caucus uh, on board. So the bill passed through the House. Um, it then went to the Senate. Um, Things appeared to be moving relatively smoothly, or at least as smoothly as anything runs in the current administration. Um, But in recent days, as you say, the bill has run into real trouble. The immediate problem for the Republicans um, is a new analysis published by the uh, Congressional Budget Watchdog. It's called the Congressional Budget Office.
0: That's a nonpartisan body. It's
2: nonpartisan. It's independent. It reviews bills produced by both uh, parties um, in, in the House. Um, And it says that the Senate bill would increase the number of people without health insurance by 22 million by 2026. It concludes that if this is enacted, premiums and out-of-pocket expenses would, would rise dramatically particularly for some low-income people and those who are nearing retirement. Um, Starting in 2020, the Budget Office Office says, those costs would be, I quote, so onerous that few low-income people would purchase any plan. So clearly this is bad news for the Republicans. I mean, they like free markets, they like consumer choice, but they also like getting re-elected. And so you've got a lot of Republicans who are facing re-election in in midterm elections in the next two years. They're growing very quickly, much more squeamish about the bill uh, concerned about the potential uh, electoral impact for them when they face re-election. And you have three Republican senators who've already indicated that they will vote against even having a debate on the bill and remember that the Republicans in the Senate can only afford to lose two people uh, in order to if they're to carry carry the bill so this puts puts Mitch McConnell who's the majority leader in the Senate in a really difficult position um, he can either withdraw the bill um, and and delay it in the hope of renegotiating or he can allow it be defeated which would be you know clearly a, a really big reversal for for him personally and for the White House as well. Their timeline was they were hoping to get this over the line by uh, a recess, uh, a Fourth of July recess. It's looking increasingly clear that that's not going to be met now. I think if they did have to delay it and wait a couple of weeks or months even later beyond that deadline, I think they could live with that. I think the prize is pretty big here. Um, But clearly, if it is defeated or if it's prolonged indefinitely, I think you're looking at um, a quite spectacular defeat for Donald Trump
0: um, in his first six
2: months as president.
0: And how damaging would that be for for Trump? He he has made um, scrapping Obamacare a priority, hasn't he? He's constantly referred to the Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, as a disaster. So how how much of a setback would it be if he's not able to get this reform through?
2: I think it'll be a huge setback. It has a, a big symbolic value. So, you know, this was one of his, as you say, one of his signature campaign pledges for two years, he, he spoke of little else when he spoke of early legislative initiatives he was going to take as president. It was the first big legislative undertaking he took on. So before um, uh, tax, the tax cut package he promised, before immigration reform. So it has a big symbolic value for Trump, far beyond uh, its appeal, I think, to the Republicans in, in the Senate and, and, and the Congress. So I think the stakes are, are really very high.
0: Okay, well, a couple of very interesting days ahead in that story. Ruan, thank you for that. Now to Germany, where Angela Merkel looks increasingly likely to secure a further term as Chancellor after this September's federal election. I'm going to talk now to our Berlin correspondent, Derek Scully.
1: So, how's that sound?
0: Hi, Derek. Hello,
1: Chris. How are you?
0: Derek, Angela Merkel has been Chancellor now for 12 years. She's already won three federal elections. She seems to be on course to win a fourth one. It's an extraordinary record. How does she do it?
1: I think she does it by um, driving by sight. I think when we look back on the Merkel era, we'll probably think of her as a very effective uh, sailor. She, she sets sail at the start of an electoral term, but she never quite tells you where she's going to uh, put down anchor at the end of the term so that wherever she ends up at the end of the term, uh, wherever she puts down anchor and gets uh, uh, goes back on land, she says, yeah, well, this is where I always intend to be. And Angela Merkel, basically, she she drives or she sails by sight. She has a very good ear, a very good nose for uh, where, where the public is, where the majorities are. And she uh, sails accordingly and she blindsides her opponents. She often waits until the very last moment to make a decision. But when she does, she often then overtakes her opponents. And um, this is either tactical genius or a strategic disaster. And uh, Martin Schulz, the man, for the social democrat who's hoping to take her On hoping to replace her as Chancellor in September. He said this is a disaster for Germany because she's a he says she's a a tactician. She's not she doesn't have a real strategy for Germany or for Europe. She has an arrogant leadership style and he's described her her three terms in office as as basically an attack on
2: democracy
1: because he says they, they she tries to put her opponents and their voters to sleep. And uh, this is where we're at at the election. We've got three months to election day on September 24th. And um, we've now this fight between Angela Merkel, the three-term leader who is hoping for a fourth by saying, you know me, I'm a stable person in an unstable world, and Martin Schulz, who, who's come from Brussels back to Berlin to present himself as a fresh wind, as a... As an alternative, as an anti-Merkel, a stable person, but somebody who thinks a little bit more long-term, he would say.
0: And and I'll I'll come back to Martin Schulz in a minute, Derek, and ask you a bit more about him. But if we take something Merkel did in the last uh, 24 hours, which was she seemed to uh, change her position on same-sex marriage um, from one of outright opposition to now saying she would allow a parliamentary vote. (laughs) Is that an example of, is that a genuine change of heart or is that an example of the kind of s- smart tactician that you've referred to there a moment ago?
1: No, that's exactly what she does. Uh, she's realised that the mood has changed, that every party, all of the mainstream parties, in the the, um, parliament are in favor of marriage equality. Uh, Ireland voted for it in 2015, and many Germans were shocked to realize that in their view, good Catholic Ireland had gone for this and Germany had fallen behind. It has a limited form of same-sex partnership. Uh, But Merkel had always held out saying that there wasn't a majority. What majority she meant, she never explained, but she always said there just wasn't really a majority. There wasn't a time, the time wasn't there. But she realized now that this was something that could trip her up in the election. So, as she has done in the past, she um, she overnight, she's just decided now that we should have a, a conscience vote on this. So she she should lift the party whip and parliamentarians could vote either in favour of marriage equality or against. In the past, she said she wasn't sure about it and she didn't really want to, um, she didn't want to push her Conservatives so far. She's, she's modernised her party quite a lot and uh, some of her Conservatives say they don't recognise her party anymore. Uh, so they, she decided it would not be wise to to push the marriage equality on them. Uh, This is classic Merkel. She's done the same. Uh, Most recently, after the Fukushima attack, she decided overnight that she wasn't in favor of nuclear power after all, and uh, introduced a massive transfer uh, of energy and resources into renewable energy. And uh, for an industrial country like Germany, that's absolutely massive. But she just decided that uh, this is where popular opinion was now. That's where she wanted to be as well. And if she didn't switch first, uh, somebody else would and catch her out. So uh, whether it's on nuclear power, even on the Greek rescue plan, she wasn't in favor of bailouts. And suddenly she was in favor of bailouts. Now she wasn't in favour of gay marriage. Now she is. Um, and, you know, people would say that's either tactically very clever, but people like Martin Schultz and others said it's actually quite cynical because you don't actually give people the idea of what you actually believe in. You just give uh, you just settle on what is technically clever at the moment.
0: She's also um, adopted maybe a more sort of strident, slightly anti-American tone recently, hasn't she, which um is, is that a response to, a necessary response to the Donald Trump presidency? Or again, has she done that with uh, her electoral prospects in mind?
1: Well, she's done one, she's done, that's another Merkel thing. She said uh, after the disastrous G7 meeting in uh, Sicily, she said that the, the era in which we could depend on others are, is in some ways over. And we Europeans need to take our our fate into our own hands. But many people have asked afterwards, well, in some ways it's over and we could depend on all those, what does that mean? And basically, she, she, to, to anyone who thinks she took a slight at Donald Trump, she did. Uh, to anyone who thinks she didn't call into question the uh, transatlantic relationship, just the relationship with Trump, they heard that. So rhetorically, enough, she gives enough to people hear what they think they heard. But later on, if she needs to change her mind again, she can, um, you know, plausible deniability is the way she works. So, again, a very clever tactician. But some people, uh, including Martin Schulz, our challenger, say that she's all tactics and no strategy. And eventually that will catch up with her.
0: Martin Schulz, of course, as you mentioned earlier, he came back recently from his previous position as, as president of the European Parliament to take over as chair of the centre-left SPD party. It's a party that's in government with Merkel at the moment, but obviously they'll be on opposite sides in the election campaign. He made a very good start in March when he came back and he seemed to be seen as a genuine challenger to Merkel, um, a genuine contender for the post of Chancellor. How has he fared since?
1: Well, he says himself he was very suspicious when there was this huge spike in support, thousands of new members, huge cheers of young people at everywhere he went. There was sort of a messiah effect. Now, he says, uh, in hindsight, uh, he should have sort of nipped that in the bud early on because uh, it, it, it collapsed quite soon. And uh, the SPD is kind of where it started. It's 15 points behind Merkel's party in polls so there's a long way to go uh, in terms of numbers to close that gap but there is just 90 days until polling day so um, a lot of ground to be made up and at the weekend they put together the party put out a a party program which they hope will uh, will give people a sense that yes there's Germany is doing well economically but there's a, a growing sense of unfairness that not everyone is benefiting from the recovery that Angela Merkel's party doesn't care about the less well-off and that's why Germany needs a social democrat government but um, some people have said that's exactly what wants the party backed it unanimously some people have said well you know what Merkel is quite a kind of a social democrat chancellor even though she's supposedly conservative she's a very centrist character Martin Schulz is presenting himself also as sort of a centrist character. he hasn't done a, a Jeremy Corbyn he hasn't taken a radical left turn, so many people are saying, well, we already have if Merkel is already doing kind of what Martin Schulz is doing um sort of splitting hairs over small policies isn't really going to win the day for Martin Schulz now Mr. Schulz says. We've gotten huge alternatives, but I think most people on the street don't really notice what is the massive difference between what Mr Schultz is proposing. Why, why they should swap uh, out one chancellor who has a proven track record, particularly in uncertain times, for an alternative if the alternative doesn't seem that much different to their eyes to to uh, the original. And that's where the election was going to be fought over. Uh, the The SPD wanted a wanted a con- wanted a content election. They wanted a policy election. But I think uh, the CDU, Merkel's party, will be anxious to have a personality election. Who do you trust more? Who do you know more, uh, particularly at a time like this?
0: And something you just touched on there, Derek, um, the perceived lack of real difference between Merkel and Schultz policy wise. How would a Merkel led Germany differ from a Martin Schultz led Germany?
1: Well, well, I think the, the um, I think the difference is that um, Angela Merkel is a proven track record. People believe she's a safe pair of hands outside. They see what she did in the refugee crisis. They may not have agreed with it, but they said that somebody needed to do something. Otherwise, these people would rot at Europe's borders. So Merkel acted, and people respect her for that. I think, from a European perspective, um, there's probably many people, including Emmanuel Macron, in in France who can work with Merkel and they they have gotten very positive signals from Merkel that she'll do everything she can to help the new French president and his government work but Martin Schulz comes from Brussels he knows how Brussels works and he's signaled that he would be far more Amenable to what France is looking for a little less uh, austerity, a little less focused on the European rules, and a little more pragmatism, particularly on things like uh, stimulus, a bit more pragmatism, budgetary flexibility on infrastructural spending. Um, Martin Schulz and Macron um, are on the same hymn sheet there that Europe needs to spend more to make more, uh, whereas Merkel's Germany, Merkel's Europe, is all about we need to get our finances in order before we can start spending massive amounts of money. So there's a a difference there in terms of what the state should be doing, what Europe should be doing for its citizens. And um, whether it's 15 billion in tax cuts for people at home in Germany or a Europe-wide infrastructure spending plan, those are what the SPD is presenting. So Merkel in the next weeks will have to uh, provide a response to that.
0: And what do you think a Merkel victory in September would mean
1: for the future direction of the EU? I think um, it's all for all to be played for because while Merkel seems, I think the genius, to get back where we started, the genius of Merkel is she never seems to move her position. But when you look back in hindsight, she has moved. She never wanted to bail out Greece. She did. She never wanted to go anywhere near nuclear energy. She did. She didn't want to touch gay marriage. She's now in favour of that. And with Emmanuel Macron, she said some remarkable things on his first visit to Berlin. And among other things, she said that, well, perhaps we should uh, alter the European treaties if we could uh, strengthen the Eurozone. Until Merkel has been in power since 2005. And since then, her mantra has always been, we're not changing the treaties. She got through the Lisbon Treaty after the collapse of the uh, European constitution. She said, I'm not doing that again. And uh, no no changes to the the European rulebook were going to happen on Merkel's watch, because as soon as you open up the treaties, everyone starts asking for a special requests. But now she seems to be saying to, for, to help Macron and to boost the Eurozone, to create Greater regulation in the eurozone, but also a new kind of uh, European finance minister, Europe, eurozone taxes that could be used to bail out countries. She seems to be now in favour of uh, doing the uh, doing the impossible, which is uh, touching her or joining a reform movement. So even if Merkel gets uh, in for a fourth term, she seems to be more uh, open to to the flexibility, the kind of flexibility that France is demanding, than in the past. So I think whoever becomes chancellor. Uh, after September's election, we might see a more a willingness, a more greater flexibility from Berlin.
0: And Derek, there are just under three months left in this campaign. Um, does Martin Schulz have time to make up the, I think there's a 15-point gap uh, between him and Merkel, or is this result really inevitable? Well,
1: I think, I mean, the, the recent British election has shown uh, don't underestimate the challenger. Uh, Theresa May started in a very comfortable position and she made a mess, but I don't think uh, Angela Merkel is so foolish uh, and but on the other hand uh, in 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 2005 Merkel only got into power on the skin of her teeth her that in 2005 the chancellor was Gerhard Schröder he was 15 points behind and he finished the election literally uh, one or two uh, percentage points behind Merkel so he almost did it. So he spoke at the weekend at the SPD party conference and he told the delegates don't be downhearted. Yes there is a gap but I've closed that gap before. The difference of course is in 2005 the SPD lost. Uh, If there's a 15 point gap to fill now uh, the SPD is hoping that Martin Schulz will close the gap and just pip uh, Angela Merkel at the post. So this race is not yet run. Derek Scully thank you. Lovely
0: stuff. Cheers talk later. And finally, to Hong Kong, where events take place this weekend to mark the 20th anniversary of the territory's handover from British to Chinese rule. Clifford Coonan, our Beijing correspondent, was in Hong Kong when the Chinese flag was raised over the city on the 1st of July, 1997, just before the last British governor Chris Patton and Prince Charles sailed away on the Royal Yacht, Britannia. Clifford, what was the atmosphere like in Hong Kong and what kind of aspirations did the people of Hong Kong have at that time about the beginning of this new period of Chinese rule?
3: Well, it was a fairly portentous time, Chris. The weather was um, it was very wet, um, very hot, and nobody knew what was going to happen. So um, there was a general air of gloom, um, of anticipation um and ultimately i think things haven't turned out as badly as people were expected uh, were expecting but at the time there were um a lot of people felt let down by britain they were anxious about what was going to happen from china and um once the pla trucks the people's Liber- liberation army trucks came over the border there was a feeling that um that things were really happening and um people started to get really quite anxious in earnest and um, I think there was a big change at that point and people realised it was really happening and um, and then we've had this intervening 20 years. To go back a, a
0: step um, before we come to that, why did the British hand Hong Kong back to China in the first place?
3: There was a treaty, um, the Treaty of Nanking, which basically allowed that that would be handed back to to the Chinese. And Margaret Thatcher then uh, argued the the, t- the terms of that with Deng Xiaoping at a time when Britain was kind of divesting itself of, of the various colonies that it had. And there was a feeling that China was a rising power and that it was a good time to be to have good relations with with China. China had always felt that Hong Kong symbolized uh, a, na- a century of national humiliation for them because uh, it had been taken for them by, from the Western powers, and in this case, particularly Britain. Uh, so the, there was a feeling that this was going to an unresolved issue in terms of um, global geopolitics and trying to uh, normalise relations between China and the outside world, and, and particularly Britain.
0: And so the promise at the time was that Hong Kong would maintain a degree of independence and it would continue to enjoy established democratic norms such as freedom of speech um, and this was to be under a policy known as one country two systems how has this worked out in practice
3: it's very easy when you're in Hong Kong to feel that um, things have gone very badly because we've uh, we've had situations of um, abductions of booksellers uh, across the border into China um, we've seen areas where it looks like freedom of the press has come under pressure but Largely, things have actually been pretty good. You still have the Falun Gong, the banned spiritual movement, for example. They still demonstrate freely on the streets of Hong Kong. And a lot of the guarantees of freedom have been respected. Um, What people see is a kind of a slow creep, and they're worried at what point China is just going to Uh, abandon a lot of the freedoms guaranteed under this mini constitution known as the basic law, which was introduced in 1997. So generally, I think um, not as much has changed as as people feared. um, But there are worries now about how things are going to develop um, over the coming years.
0: And a story you have covered extensively in recent years, Clifford, has been that of the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. And there were mass protests on the streets there in 2014. What's the status of that movement now?
3: Well, that movement ended, uh, the umbrella movement uh, went from taking over huge swathes of the city, um, organized predominantly by, by teenage activists and students. Um, it's now become, it, they didn't get any of their demands. The, the government just stood firm. Uh, Beijing said, we're not giving an inch and, and there was no quarter. And what is left is a feeling of division in Hong Kong. And um, the those parties that organised the umbrella protests have turned into um, into into in, into into um, movements that are now looking for more independence, more autonomy. So in some ways, um, the positions have hardened, um, one of them, uh, Demosisto, which is probably the best known, given that it's led by Joshua Wong, who was a figurehead, uh, 17, uh, a teenage figurehead for the um, for the democracy movement. Uh, three years ago. Um, They have already said that they're going to demonstrate now when Xi Jinping comes to visit uh, in coming days. The Chinese president. That's right. Sorry, the Chinese president, Xi Jinping. Um, So um, what you've seen then is that the, the movements are now they're getting ready to try and make their voice heard. Um, but the the positions have really entrenched.
0: And where do you think, Clifford, from your frequent visits to Hong Kong, and you're going back there to cover the the um, 20th anniversary events this weekend, where do you think the is it possible to assess where the silent majority is where in Hong Kong stand? Are they are they more in favour of this pro-democracy movement or are they satisfied with Beijing rule?
3: Um, I think um, this is the key question. And in some ways, when you meet people in Hong Kong, it's incredible to see that these very well educated, very sophisticated um, and very international people um, and very wealthy people in many cases that you meet um, don't have a say in determining their own future. So there's always that feeling. At the same time, Hong Kong has really benefited from its closeness to China economically um, because um, of the access to this enormous China market. And a lot of the money coming into Hong Kong has been uh, coming from China. What that's done, though, is driven the price of housing up and Uh, to the point where a lot of ordinary Hong Kongers can't afford to live, to buy apartments there anymore. And it's also hit services and and things like that. So um, I think going forward, um, we're going to see the pro-democracy movement possibly getting more of a voice, uh, more of a unified voice, which has always been a problem in Hong Kong, is that the democracy movement has been very diverse. Um, And now under the new uh, chief executive, Carrie Lam, who will be inaugurated by President Xi uh, this week, um, possibly she will bring the democracy voices to the table. But it's very, very unlikely that China is going to allow more democracy in Hong Kong, given that it is a special administrative region of China. And uh, China's move at the moment is not towards more democracy, and but towards And do you expect less. the
0: activists on the pro-democracy side to try to make an awful of noise this weekend?
3: Absolutely. They've already done something. They've already covered the this Bohemia flower that's a symbol of Hong Kong. They've already draped it in a black flag in the harbour um i'm on social media um i'm noting that there's all kinds of messages going around saying we're meeting here we're meeting here they're planning all kinds of things um i suppose in some ways this answers the question you were saying earlier about how how many how much freedoms are still preserved in china in in hong kong uh, the fact that they're able to do this which would be completely impossible in mainland china is uh, significant in one way but um I think um, ultimately it's a question of uh, how this goes down and whether this has any real impact and how much of an impact it makes on on Xi Jinping when he's in town. And
0: how do you think Clifford Hong Kong has fared under Chinese rule? You mentioned there are some of the uh, economic difficulties that have arisen, but um, has it maintained its status as an economic powerhouse? And do you think has it, has it fared better or is it possible to say is it for better or worse under Chinese rule than it would have done under British rule?
3: Um, I think it's probably done very well with, through its proximity with China in terms of going forward. I mean, huge sway of southern china are dominated by hong kong firms. um a lot of industries um there's a lot of hong kong people in in mainland china now doing business so certainly from on on the economic side it's done really well um but what's interesting is the perception of hong kong has has i think suffered particularly with the the demonstrations and and uh compared to other regional centers because hong kong has to compete with places like singapore um and um there's a perception maybe that hong kong isn't as uh, isn't doing as well as uh, uh, as it could do because um it's it's too much in china's thrall um it doesn't it could lose some of its international element if there's too much of a chinese influence so i think the political side even though it doesn't really affect the financial uh, uh, side that much right now longer term it could have an impact because people will feel hong kong isn't as as free an environment to live in and to work in as, uh, as say, Singapore or, or other uh, centres in the region.
0: Well, Clifford, we look forward to reading your dispatches from there over the coming days. Great.
3: OK, thanks, Chris. That's
0: great. Cheers. That's it for this week. For more on these stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.